everyone, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, mutual aid, cooperation in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is the third episode, or fifth if you're counting the prequel episodes, of my series on the book Debt. In this episode, I'm going to walk you through the key ideas of Chapter 2 of Debt, and then later this month, I will discuss chapter with a guest, uh, and as long as everything goes as planned, I've got Cory Doctorow lined up for that, so really looking forward to have him back on the show again to discuss Graber. Now, if you've been listening to this series since the beginning, you know that I started it with these prequel episodes about an article that Graber wrote in 2009 called Against Economics. I think that would be a fair title for this chapter as well, Against Economics. First of all, because Graeber does more in this chapter than debunk the myth of barter, he attacks more than a few of the beloved ideas behind economics. But secondly, the myth of barter is the big one in this chapter, and it's also the big one for the field of economics. It is the myth that holds up all of the other myths in the field. Now, like all myths, the myth of barter isn't true. But that's okay. Every idea, every story, every ideology in some absolute sense isn't true. But they do work. They make things happen. They transform the world. A myth is a story that explains how the world works. Myth is just another word for ideology. And like all the other myths, this one is just the product of human imagination. So what is this founding myth of economics? <laughs> For one thing, it is just beautifully, perfectly dialectical. It contains within itself the destruction of itself. Or as John P. Clark says, it is what it isn't. What do I mean by dialectical? Well, on the one hand, the field of economics is the field that tells us that everything, everything, family, love, health, death, sports, anything you want to name, from the trivial to the profound, can be quantified, can be turned into numbers. And remember that the turning of morality into numbers, Graeber argues, is what makes it possible for us to be so cruel to one another. Good people will do good things, and bad people will do bad things. But it takes the quantification of morality to make good people do cruel things like end an inexpensive program that prevents malaria outbreaks from occurring in Madagascar. So the field of economics is at war against the imaginary, against storytelling. I would say against humanity. It only believes in the cold, hard facts as they are expressed in numbers. Pattern grid world, as the wrong boys call it. And yet... The field of economics itself seems completely uninterested in cold, hard facts and only wants to tell stories. Sometimes with numbers, sure, but still mostly imaginary stories. The founding myth of the field of economics explains why everything should be quantified into numbers. But that founding myth itself is a story without quantification. To quote the economist Eli Devins, and I got this quote from Cory Doctorow, If economists wished to study the horse, they wouldn't go and look at horses. They'd sit in their studies and say to themselves, 
what would I do if I were a horse? So <laughs> here's the dialectic. According to economists, stories, values, ideas are all worthless. Only numbers matter. But economics itself isn't based on numbers. It's based on stories. One big story in particular, which is the myth of barter. To paraphrase that Devin's quote, when economists decided to figure out how money worked, they didn't study how money worked. They sat in their studies and asked themselves, what would I do if I lived in a village that didn't have any money? And what they decided is that they would use barter and that barter would be very inconvenient because you couldn't quantify anything. And so you would have to invent money. Here's Graeber describing that uh, pretend village that the economists have made up. It's important to emphasize that this village is not presented as something that actually happened, but as a purely imaginary exercise. And then he quotes all of these textbooks. This is me really focusing on the imaginary part. Now, here's some quotes from Graeber. To see that society benefits from the medium of exchange, imagine a barter economy. That's Berg, Fisher, and Dornbuch from Economics 2005. Imagine the difficulty you would have today if you had to exchange your labor directly for the fruits of someone else's labor. That's Maunder, Myers, Wall, and Miller from Economics Explained, 1991. Imagine you have roosters, but you want roses. That's Parkin and King from Economics, 1995. Graber's done quoting. Back to Graber. One could multiply examples endlessly. Just about every economics textbook employed today sets out the problem the same way. Historically, they note, we know that there was a time when there was no money. What must it have been like? Well, let us imagine an economy something like today's, except with no money. That would have been decidedly inconvenient. Surely people must have invented money for the sake of efficiency. So there you have the proof of that Eli Devins quote about imagining horses. When economists decided to explain how money came to be, they didn't use math. They didn't use empirical methods. They just imagined what it would be like. The field of economics is more imaginary than any of the fields that it attacks for just being subjective. The empirical truth about money, as I'm sure you figured out by now, is that money is actually debt. So the invention of money wasn't when people started trying to make their small village businesses more efficient so they didn't have to trade roosters for roses. The invention of money was actually when debt obligations became big, therefore impersonal, and then got quantified. This seems to have happened in a few places. And Graeber does note that when Adam Smith, who is really the inventor of the myth of barter, at least as we understand the field of economics, made up his fantasy, we can't fault him for not knowing what had happened 5,000 years ago because back then we hadn't translated the texts that tell this story. But now, even though we have translated them and we do have the proof of what happened, economists are still using this myth. We, and for the purposes of this episode, I'm just going to focus on Mesopotamia that's where Graeber spends most of his time, and he says it's because most of the cuneiform writing we have from that period is just temple receipts. 
we literally have the receipts on the invention of money. But before we get to Mesopotamia, let's spend a little more time in the economist's fantasy world um, and also do a very brief description of how, how debt worked and still works in societies that haven't done precise quantification of debt. Obviously, all of us are familiar with these societies because we all live in groups in which debt hasn't been precisely quantified. Your family, your friend group, your classroom, etc. But Graeber tells us some fables drawn from anthropology that help us understand how the world works or a society could work in which all debt is qualitative rather than quantitative. But before I get to Graeber's counter fable, I need to share with you the economist's fable that gets him started. I'm calling it the Ballad of Henry and Joshua. Here's the story. Um, it's uh, from the textbook by Joseph Stiglitz and John Driffel. And I'm going to start with the quote from Stiglitz and Driffel, which is from Graeber, and then get into Graeber's analysis. So here's Stiglitz and Driffel. One can imagine an old-style farmer bartering with the blacksmith, the tailor, the grocer, and the doctor in his small town. For simple barter to work, however, there must be a double coincidence of wants. Henry has potatoes and wants shoes. Joshua has an extra pair of shoes and wants potatoes. Bartering can make them both happier. But if Henry has firewood and Joshua does not need any of that, then bartering for Joshua's shoes requires one or both of them to go searching for more people in the hope of making a multilateral exchange. Money provides a way to make multilateral exchange much simpler. Henry sells his firewood to someone else for money and then uses the money to buy Joshua's shoes. Okay, that's the end of the quote from the textbook, and here's Graeber. Again, this is just a make-believe land, much like the present, except with money somehow plucked away. As a result, it makes no sense. Who in their right mind would set up a grocery in such a place? And how would they get supplies? But let's leave that aside. There's a simple reason why everyone who writes an economics textbook feels they have to tell us the same story. For economists, it is in a very real sense the most important story ever told. It was by telling it, in the significant year of 1776, that Adam Smith, professor of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow, effectively brought the discipline of economics into being. So, and this takes us back to that Eli Devins quote, economists have to imagine scenarios like this because that is more or less the definition of economics. If they do something else, they're not economists anymore. Beyond that, for what's coming next, you just have to understand the Henry-Joshua situation. They live together in a village. Maybe it's a New England village. Ralph Waldo Emerson lives next door. Emily Dickinson is their next-door neighbor. There's a cranky old guy writing a book about the whale nearby. Something like that. You get the picture. This is a fantasy of an American small-town Norman Rockwell style. Except the world building by Stiglitz and Driffel is so slapdash that they want to suggest that Joshua and Henry, both adults, have just figured out for the first time that their old system of bartering firewood for shoes doesn't work. It's a little known fact, and you have to trust me on this because I'm an authority on American literature. Henry David Thoreau didn't have shoes because he had firewood and could never find anyone to make a multilateral trade such that he could get shoes. That's just how it was back then. They hadn't invented money yet. 
remember, it's only economists who believe in this myth. Lots of people have debunked it, most prominently the anthropologists. Graeber quotes Caroline Humphrey to make this point. He describes her work as the definitive anthropological work on barter, and she writes, No example of a barter economy, pure and simple, has ever been described, let alone the emergence from it of money. All available ethnography suggests that there never has been such a thing. Now, if you've come from this world, you might be harumphing. How did people live before money, if not by bartering? Um, according to Graeber, people did barter, but barter was for something with strangers, not with your fellow community members. I'm not qualified to really judge that, but I can tell you, I recommend The Dawn of Everything, the book he wrote with David Wingrove for a really extensive description of how various societies could be constituted in ways that are, let's say, out of our Western imaginary. And I think that's why you're probably thinking, wait a second, there must have been barter before money, because our imagination has been limited. And if you've got neighbors, you know perfectly well how Henry and Joshua could deal with the firewood and shoes situation, as long as you've ever done a favor for your neighbor, anyways. Here's one of Graeber's little fables about how a gift economy could work. And there's lots more of this in debt. There's also tons of it in The Dawn of Everything. The authors of the original example, that original example being Henry and Joshua, seem to assume two neighbors of roughly equal status, not closely related, but on friendly terms. That is, as close to neutral equality as one can get. Even so, this doesn't say much. For example, if Henry was living in a Seneca longhouse and needed shoes, Joshua would not even enter into it. He'd simply mention it to his wife, who'd bring up the matter with the other matrons, fetch materials from the longhouse's collective storehouse, and sew him some. Alternately, to find a scenario fit for an imaginary economics textbook, we might place Joshua and Henry together in a small, intimate community like a Nambiquara or Gonwingu band. And then Graeber gives us what he calls scenario one for the gift economy. Henry walks up to Joshua and says, nice shoes. Joshua says, oh, they're not much, but since you seem to like them, by all means take them. Henry takes the shoes. Henry's potatoes are not an issue, since both parties are perfectly well aware that if Joshua were ever short of potatoes, Henry would give him some. I think this mostly speaks for itself, but I've got a few things to add. The first is that, before he translates the stupid parable into something that sort of resembles a community that might actually exist, Graeber pauses to note that there is no such thing as a pre-money society. There are many different ways to organize society without money. So the Seneca example can't even be translated into Henry and Joshua. So he has to choose one of the groups, and I'm not going to try to pronounce their names again, whose society is organized in such a way that this parable makes sense for Joshua and Henry to be interacting this way, even though there are plenty of societies in which the shoes and potatoes scenario was literally unimaginable because their lives just weren't organized like a New England village. The second point I want to make is that this is a place where Graeber is clearly influenced by Kropotkin. Although in many ways, you know, anarchism is a product of modernity. It's one of the many, many 19th century reactions to the Industrial Revolution and the French Revolution. When Kropotkin sought to give it underpinnings, 
ideological underpinnings, which he did in the book Mutual Aid, he suggested that all of evolution has progressed through cooperation and that village cooperation is an obvious example like this. So the fact that Joshua and Henry are behaving like anarchists, that they're doing mutual aid, that the potato sharing would be obvious to them, and the fact that Joshua and Henry are behaving like people who live in a Neolithic-style village is not an accident. In fact, that's because one of the key ideas behind anarchism is that anarchism is, if not a return to an older way of life, at the very least an outgrowth from the older ways of life, an evolutionary descendant of them in a way that industrial capitalism isn't, is a new dangerous parasitic species on this cooperation that has made humanity thrive. Speaking of industrial capitalism, Graeber's other point is that if Joshua and Henry know each other quite well, they're almost like family, then the rules of industrial capitalism don't work at all. One of the key ideas of economics is that, quote, the market is separate from everything else. It's separate from friends, family, community, faith, neighborliness. If you give your starving neighbor some potatoes, you're not in the market. You're just being friendly. So economics is meant to be a study of impersonal relations, scenarios in which you shouldn't assume that the person you're interacting with cares if you live or die. I think one way to define anarchism drawn from Kropotkin is the idea that all we need is neighborliness and everything else will work itself out without any sort of larger system. So if Joshua and Henry are neighbors, are friends, are community members, they're not in the market and the field of economics doesn't apply. So Graeber tries again to make the story of Joshua and Henry make sense. Here's Graeber. Scenario two. Henry walks up to Joshua and says, nice shoes. Or perhaps let's make this a bit more realistic. Henry's wife is chatting with Joshua's and strategically lets slip that the state of Henry's shoes is getting so bad he's complaining about corns. The message is conveyed and Joshua comes by the next day to offer his extra pair to Henry as a present, insisting that this is just a neighborly gesture he would certainly never want anything in return. It doesn't matter whether Joshua is sincere in saying this. By doing so, Joshua thereby registers a credit. Henry owes him one. How might Henry pay Joshua back? There are endless possibilities. Perhaps Joshua really does want potatoes. Henry waits a discreet interval and drops them off, insisting that this too is just a gift. Or Joshua doesn't need potatoes now, but Henry waits until he does. Or maybe a year later, Joshua is planning a banquet, so he comes strolling by Henry's barnyard and says, Nice pig. Now I'm skipping a decent chunk of Graeber, but this is still Graeber this next bit. There is just one major conceptual problem here, one the attentive reader might have noticed. Henry owes Joshua one. One what? How do you quantify a favor? On what basis do you say that this many potatoes or this big of a pig seems more or less equivalent to a pair of shoes? Because even if these things remain rough and ready approximations, there must be some way to establish that X is roughly equivalent to Y, or slightly worse, or slightly better. Doesn't this imply that something like money, at least in the sense of a unit of accounts by which one can compare the value of different objects, already has to exist? Alright, I'm going to stop the story there and talk through this bit of Graeber. 
First, we can see that this is still a gift economy, but it's one that is less personal than the previous Joshua and Henry story. But second, we've got the big problem that the myth of barter purports to solve. Henry owes him one, and we don't know what one is. Graeber explains that many gift economy societies have elaborate systems for determining what counts as one, and they are a mixture of quantitative and qualitative, and they seem pretty arbitrary to me. But we don't really need to worry about that right now. We only need to see how imaginary, how divorced from reality, the land of barter is. And now that we've seen that the land of barter is completely absurd and imaginary, Graeber is ready to tell us the true story of where money came from. That moment, roughly 5,000 years ago, when the gift economy switched to a debt economy, also known as a money economy. This happened multiple times, but according to Graeber, most of our information is from Mesopotamia. That's where we have the best story. So finally, we're going to ancient Sumer and the creation of debt. This is our last long Graeber quote. The Sumerian economy was dominated by vast temple and palace complexes. These were often staffed by thousands. Priests and officials, craftspeople who worked in their industrial workshops, farmers and shepherds who worked their considerable estates. Even though ancient Sumer was usually divided into a large number of independent city-states, by the time the curtain goes up on Mesopotamian civilization around 3500, Temple administrators already appear to have developed a single, uniform system of accountancy. One that is in some ways still with us, actually, because it's to the Sumerians that we owe such things as the dozen or the 24-hour day. The basic monetary unit was the silver shekel. One shekel's weight in silver was established as the equivalent of one gur, or bushel of barley. A shekel was subdivided into 60 minas, corresponding to one portion of barley, on the principle that there were 30 days in a month, and temple workers received two rations of barley every day. It's easy to see that money, in this sense, is in no way the product of commercial transactions. It was actually created by bureaucrats in order to keep track of resources and move things back and forth between departments. Temple bureaucrats used the system to calculate debts, rents, fees, loans, in silver. Silver was effectively money. But silver did not circulate very much. Most of it just sat around in temple and palace treasuries, some of which remained carefully guarded in the same place for literally thousands of years. It would have been easy enough to standardize the ingots, stamp them, create some authoritative system to guarantee their purity. The technology existed. Yet no one saw any particular need to do so. One reason was that while debts were calculated in silver, they did not have to be paid in silver. In fact, they could be paid in more or less anything one had around. Peasants who owed money to the temple or palace, or to some temple or palace official, seemed to have settled their debts mostly in barley. But it was perfectly acceptable to show up with goats, or furniture, or lapis lazuli. Temples and palaces were huge industrial operations that could find a use for almost anything. In the marketplaces that cropped up in Mesopotamian cities, merchants, who sometimes worked for the temples, sometimes operated independently, were among the few people who did often actually use silver in transactions, but even they mostly did much of their dealings on credit, and ordinary people, buying beer from ale women or local innkeepers, once again did so by running up a tab to be settled at harvest time in barley 
or anything they might have had at hand. Like I said, that was our last Longgraver quote. So I think the thrust of this speaks for itself. Bureaucrats made up an instrument of exchange, and then everything functioned by using that instrument. But the real thing, the silver, never mattered much, and mostly money was just debt. I do want to call attention that there's very little difference between the account of how money worked in Sumer 5,500 years ago and how money works right now as described in Against Economics. In this crucial way, the story of Graeber's book is how little has changed. Money is just debt, precisely quantified, which can be created by anyone, but some amount of which is ultimately owed to a central bureaucracy, which creates, but doesn't actually control, the idea of money in the system. That's what money was in 3500 BC, and that's what it is in the 21st century. Of course, to this day, if you ask an economist where money comes from, they are more likely than not going to tell you a story about barter. If you listen to the Dirk Entz episode about against economics, he points out that the central banks have started admitting that's not where money comes from. And so Dirk doesn't know if people who get PhDs in economics are going to be able to work for the central banks anymore because the central banks no longer believe in the myth of barter. But if you get a PhD in economics, odds are good that you have to believe in the myth of barter. So that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on in the next few decades. This myth of barter, uh, which has no evidence in the archaeological record, no evidence in anthropology research, uh, and not even any evidence in how central banks work, just keeps going. These economists will tell you about an imaginary world in which Henry has firewood and Joshua has shoes. That's all they have. If they give that up, they don't have a field of economics anymore. And if we don't have that field of economics, the central myth that sustains capitalism, or let's say neoliberalism, or managerial feudalism, or whatever you want to call it, and if they give that up, the central myth of capitalism goes away. And they can't have that. Okay, now... Uh, we're going to have a very interesting conversation with Cory Doctorow. Uh, we haven't actually recorded that yet. I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit, but I think I'm going to speak with him more uh, about the book overall than into the nitty-gritty of this chapter. We'll see. The next chapter is when things start getting really interesting. If you listen to Against Economics, a lot of what you heard in this chapter was review. The next chapter is the myth of primordial debt, which has gotten a lot less attention than the myth of barter. But here Graeber is turning away from the neoliberal or capitalist myth and looking at what I would call the socialist myth. This is where the anarchism gets really strong in this book, and this is where the anarchist tradition that Graeber is following seems to me to be defining itself against the democratic socialist tradition that so many of the people that I have had on this show are more in favor of. I'll be thinking about this a lot as the series goes on. I also am bringing in my first anthropologist, Bill Maurer, to uh, help us understand what work this very confusing and obscure or <laughs> maybe simple and everywhere myth of primordial debt 
is coming from and what it's doing. Um, and Bill will just be able to make, uh, make more sense of the anthropological nature of this book. All right. If this is the first time you are listening to this series, I recommend you go back and listen to the entire series. I've got uh, all the episodes listed on my website, everydayanarchism.com. If you have questions, things you want me to cover in future episodes, you can email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. This series will keep going. Still got almost a year left. Um, And as always, the show can use your support. Ratings or reviews on Apple or Spotify, telling a friend, or a financial contribution at everydayanarchism.com. All of those things help. Finally, the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill. <laughs>